This is the Stay Healthy Experience with Robert Ferguson and Barbara Chris. And today, we're going to talk about boxing. And not just boxing, we're going to talk about someone that I've admired for many, many years. I've had a thousand questions about. <laughs> uh, and that's a former world boxing champion, Sonny Liston. Um, amazing story, uh, Barbara. And, and Barbara is not uh, as knowledgeable about boxing. So right. that's why I'm glad you're here, because there's a human side of this that I think has been overlooked. Um, and we're so lucky because we have Paul Gallander, who wrote the book, Sonny Liston, the real story behind the Ali Liston fights. Uh, there's also a second book, which we'll touch on. But Paul, I'm so thankful to have you here. Thank you. My pleasure. Yes, thanks for joining us. So to get things started, Paul, you know, let's just kind of jump right into it. I mean, you spent, what, over 30 years of your life researching Sunny Liston? Um, yeah, I did a couple of other things during that time, but no, that was basically my life. So Right. So for people who don't know anything about Sunny Liston, let's start there. Let's, let's hear your narrative of who he was and why you were fascinated about his life. For me, it was all about the man's talent. Um, yeah, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, like most kids, I was a sports fan. I didn't participate that much because I'm not that big. Um, and, but I followed sports religiously. And uh, the thing that occurred to me about Sonny Liston in the late 70s, and I had been, a, I had been an Ali fan all my life. He's the, in, he's the reason I got interested in heavyweight boxing. Back uh, in 1961, he won the Olympic light heavyweight gold medal. Um, and I came to realize uh, a few years after he died, just how talented this man was. And it occurred to me that apart from Muhammad Ali, there had never been a professional fighter uh, a heavyweight who stood a reasonable chance of beating the man. So, like I said, it was all about his talent. Uh, you know, he was an incredible, an, an incredible physical specimen in that he was six feet, one half inch tall. His optimal weight was between 209 and 212. Um, and he had these huge fists, 15 and a half inch fists and an 84 inch reach which means that his reach was a foot longer than his, than his height. And he had, every one of his punches was powerful. So I realized, my God, the guy's been dead eight years now, back in 1978, and nobody remembers him for the talent that he was. As I got to know more about him, I realized, well, this was not a real bad man. He was more good than bad. He was not a saint. And he did some really shitty things, I'll admit that. Um, but especially when you compare him to other boxers, other athletes, he was really no different than a lot of people. He was just looking for a second chance to prove himself not only as a great fighter, but as a good human being and a person worthy of respect. And he's never gotten. Um, would, you, would you say that he is uh, an unsung hero? Would that be like a short way of, of summing up the life of Sonny Liston? Well, yeah, and, 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 the, and I would add to that that Sonny Liston's life mattered, all right? And it still does. Because it, you see somebody like George Floyd and all of these black men who got attacked and sometimes killed 
primarily because they look menacing. The difference between those guys, George Floyd and all of those men, and Sonny Liston, is that the police would not dare try and fight him on his terms. <laughs> they, they would not. I, I mean, Sonny could, Sonny could beat a number of people at the same time in a fight, and he did that. Um, so yeah, he was mad. Uh, well, well, let's let's go back to the beginning because as 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 we move into his life, uh, let's educate Barbara and those who listen that don't know about the boxer. But let's go back to the, this gentleman, his life when he was born, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've learned. His mom uh, gave birth to over 20 kids. Is that accurate? No, his, um, his father, um, I think, had 12 kids before he married uh, Helen. Uh, his father's name was Tobe, T-O-B-E. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Tobe Liston. And, and, uh, and when, when he married Helen, she had another 13 kids. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, you know, the living situation couldn't have been good because they were dirt poor in Arkansas. Um, and he had a very abusive childhood. He was big. And so his father, when the mule died, evidently put Sonny on the plow before he was at the age of 10. He was a huge guy. He was a huge kid. Wow. Um, yeah. And so he grew up in the worst possible circumstances. Right. If I grew, I grew up in the best possible circumstances. If I had grown up in 25% of the crap that he, and endured 25% of the stuff that he endured, I don't know if I would have made it. I mean, you, you, know, you deal with whatever comes your way, but based on my upbringing, I would have never been equipped to survive like Sonny did. Right. And, wow. Uh, and, and not only that, is it also true that back then when you were born, or at least in his environment, there was a tree that was on their property and how they measured what their age was, was every year they would measure their height and do a little tick. And unfortunately the tree got, you know, uh, they, 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 they tore the tree down. And so he really never knew what his real age was. That's right. Um, he never did. And, uh, son was an honest person. He was an honest man and he didn't lie. And the only thing I think that he really lied about, or ever lied about um, was his age. And the reason being, when he got out of prison in 1952 after serving, I think, two and a half years, close to three years for a series of armed robberies that netted him and a couple other guys about 50 bucks. I mean, he wasn't the world's greatest thief. Um, <laughs> so we went from, from that verse to this guy in prison, and Barbara's going, so, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's almost like a contradictory a little bit because in one breath you say he was an honest, good guy, but then record shows that he committed these crimes and ended up having yeah. time in prison. Yeah, um, and he never denied it. He never, you know, he said, look, I, I, I did my time. Uh, uh, if I was smart, I would have avoided what I did uh, completely. And what I was saying is that when he, so when he got out of jail in 1952, he turned pro in 1953, he gave his birth date as 1932, usually January 8th, 1932, sometimes May 8th, 1932, which would have made him about 21 years old. And the reason he did that, the reason he lied 
is because he was in truth, he was born either 1917, 1918, or 1919. And to turn pro as a 36-year-old or a 35 or a 34-year-old boxer, people would not have looked at him the same way. Mm. Right. So, go ahead. Oh, no. So, Paul, I was wondering, what kind of research do you do to find out this information? Do you reach out to family? And how do you, how do you find out about this? Well, I, I kind of bungled, I bungled my way along. I really did. <laughs> uh, I taught myself to write in the process. I would not consider myself an investigative journalist at all wow. because the people that I was able to talk to, his family members, his dear friends, I got lucky in talking to almost all of them. You know, I'd be talking to somebody. They said, yeah, I met Sonny Liston's son. I was talking to him a while ago. And I said, what? Sonny had several, fathered several ch children out of wedlock. Pardon me? I was saying, do all those kids know that Sonny Liston was their dad? And did you ever get to talk to any of them? Uh, I only talked to the one, uh, William Wingate. And he's no longer with us, correct? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, Bill passed away almost two years ago. Oh, um, wow. Did he look like his dad? Um, he was built a little like his father. He was a big man. When I met him, he was almost 400 pounds. Um, and then he had gastric bypass, and he lost a lot of weight. But he was a very tough man. He told me when, when Joe Frazier, when he met Joe Frazier, uh, and Frazier shook, he, shook his hand, he said, yeah, that's him. Because he had big hands and he had huge forearms. He's so he a was, very powerful guy. He was built similar um, to his father. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he never knew Sonny was his dad. He was just a good friend of the family. Hmm. Um, Even because, when he died, uh, he never knew that that was his father? After he died, his mother told him that. Whoa. And what was his mom's name? Dolores. Okay. Because, yeah, uh, and I, I, I only know that because I asked him about it. Right? Sonny's wife was uh, Geraldine. And so I think, Barbara, from, from what I understand, Sonny Liston was a loving guy for kids and for elders, but he loved women also. Oh. He had a wondering yeah. eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a whole mouth. I think he came from the uh, Wilt Chamberlain School of. Uh, <laughs> Being with women. Yeah, he never caught up, I don't think, but uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. Right. Oh, yeah, because Will Chamberlain, he has quite the record, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so I have, I have a key question that I, I can't figure out, and I know you have the answer, is that as Sonny was growing up and he eventually got back with his mom in St. Louis, uh, he had to track her down. When he first got there, he, it, he didn't see her immediately right wasn't there like a period of time like a year maybe that went by while he was on the street and getting in trouble before he found his mom um i'm not sure and i think a lot of that story was just the narrative he wanted to put forth okay. because the narrative was oh yeah he was 13 years old and he he went looking for his mom and what he did he shucked some uh uh pecans i guess and did it enough for almonds to, to, uh, to get enough of a, a train fare to go to St. Louis at the age of 13 in 1945. But he was probably more like 20 years old, right? 
1945, he was 26 to 28. Okay. Wow. So that, yeah, and so that's why the story of, oh, oh yeah, you talk to somebody, said, well, there's a woman that lives down the block or whatever. I'm not sure about any of that. Right. Um, <laughs> now, but all right, so when did he start boxing? Because right. I know he came out of prison boxing, but did he have any experience before he went to prison? Yes, he did. He fought in 1934. I don't know if he fought more than once, but under the nickname, under the name of Charles Sailor Listing. And there was an article in the East St. Louis Journal from January of 1934, as I recall, which was put in print by a sports writer by the name of Wells Twombly uh, after Sonny died in the early 70s. And I had seen a picture of Sonny, uh, his, uh, his arrest photo in, in St. Louis in 1949. And the photo in that newspaper article in 1934 was a dead ringer for Sonny Lister the same body, the same look on his face. So he did, he dabbled in it. And uh, I don't know if he had more than one fight because that was the only record of it. And, it's a, and there's not much of a record of it. Um, and then so when he went to prison, um, he got into fights and one of the, one of the, um, one of the chaplains there, um, uh, was his name, um, Father Stevens, Father Alois Stevens. He said, look, if you know, you think you're such a tough guy, why don't, you, why don't you join the boxing program? We're always looking for guys to do that. And that's when he started. <laughs> and when, right before he got out, he was paroled, um, a trainer came and bought a, brought a professional fighter who had had a number of professional fights. And what they saw from Liston, they said, get this guy out of jail, get him out of prison. I can headway champion. That's what one of the guys there said. Mm -hmm. So he learned enough. But when he turned wow. up, in his sixth professional fight, he fought a guy by the name of Johnny Summerlin, a small but rated heavyweight. Uh, and he was a huge underdog. He beat him. He decisioned him. He fought him against a, a few months later. He, he won a decision again. And that's when people started to realize there was something going on with this guy. Mm. And his career uh, underwent another... Uh, interruption when he got arrested for assaulting a policeman. Uh, a guy who insulted him and his wife called him the n-word. He had no cause to even harass Sonny at the time and when he pulled his gun on Sonny, Sonny took it away from him, went berserk. The guy ended up in a garbage can with a broken leg. He went to his sister's house where he got arrested. Wow. And, yeah and he only served nine months which means there was doubt as to who started the altercation or the fact that the Teamsters who had mob connections were able to get him out of jail so that the mob could, could move him to St. Louis, to, uh, to Philadelphia, where they could get his career going. Wow, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. They so that's, a, die, so that's a little bit I know is that there's like that mafia kind of tie-in or organized crime <laughs> well, yeah, yeah if they saw a talent like him and exactly. this cop he goes in <laughs> like they see him for boxing next thing you know they're like you know we can make money with this guy so already he starts off his career with a little bit of a blemish and probably some type of tie where it's not just boxing for him and his family but he's boxing for the mob and some other people 
Exactly. So yeah, he had the, the two main strikes against the two main strikes against him. One that he had been in prison and then in the city workhouse in St. Louis. So he had served time twice, and that the mob was behind him. Now the mob never fixed the fight, but uh, the mob was behind every major fighter. The mob was behind Rocky Marciano. They were even behind Floyd Patterson because his manager. Customato had mob connections. Um, so, yeah. And so when the press started talking to him, that's all they would focus on. Right. Sonny, he was a man of few words. He did not like to talk. By the way, I live on Sheridan Road in Chicago, so occasionally <laughs> I can see the lake. It's right across the street from me. And, uh, there's a lot of critical cases going back and forth. Um, Okay, so, so, so when he got out then, the second time, was he boxing pro at the time, or was he boxing yeah. amateur? Yeah, I think he had maybe 13 or 14 fights uh, from 1953 uh, through 1956. Wow. And then he did fight again for almost, I think, about 21 months. Okay. From sometime in 56 to early in 58. And after second fight, he got moved to Philadelphia. Um, so he was... When I remember when Archie Moore read a magazine article back in 1956, he said, there's a boy blowing like a hurricane. And that was Sonny Liston. Um, mm -hmm. And he probably knew Sonny Liston, too, because they were born around the same time. I don't know if they spent that much time together, but I, they did spend time together in St. Louis. So, yeah, he was an accomplished fighter already uh, okay. so, when he got out of jail. So let me, so Barbara, so, so back. Yeah. So Sonny Liston, number one, he had these hands that when people met him, he had hands like Tony Robbins. Like big old? I mean, like big hands. Like hands that he could have been in a fair or a circus. <laughs> That'd be accurate. <laughs> like big <Yeah>. show hands? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I have small hands. My fist is maybe eight inches, if that. And they described his fingers like uh, cucumbers. He just had the oh my God. I, I, yeah, I only saw Sonny train one time. It was in, um, I believe it was either 68 or 69 in Los Angeles where I was going. You to saw school. him train live? Yeah. It, wow. It was at the oh, awesome. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I kind of regret never going up to him, but the, he, he looked so miserable. You know, and, and a look on his face would discourage anyone from talking to him. But I'm sure he would have liked, you know, he would have talked to somebody. He liked talking to kids. Not that I was a kid at the time, but he would have probably looked at me like a kid. But I didn't go up to him. You know what's um, interesting? And so, well, yeah. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but as you were talking, I started thinking about George Foreman, who eventually was a sparring partner with uh, uh, Sonny Liston. And if you look at George's career, when he first was coming on the scene, he always looked mean. He always was mad. He always had a frown. And like when he fought Muhammad Ali, he goes all the way over to Africa. He's got a dog. And in that country, that was a sign of disrespect. He just didn't care. But then you fat, and, and so my thought is, he must have picked up some of that behavior or that way of branding himself without realizing it based on his time with Sonny. Oh, no, he realized it. Okay. You he mean the frown, the frown part? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, no, he wanted to look that way. <laughs> the difference between the look that George Foreman put on in the center of the ring or Mike Tyson is that they were trying to achieve that look. Mm. That was the real Sonny Liston. Uh, I mean, uh, when he went into the ring and he said it, uh, he said, he, when I get in the ring, uh, I get in to kill the other guy. That's what I do. That's how, and he didn't mean he didn't want it to actually end the guy's life, mm -hmm. but that's what it was. It was kill or be killed. Right. <laughs> and, um, so, and a lot of people have talked about this. Yeah. You looked at Sonny Liston, you looked at that stare that he had and that glare and you go, that's the real thing. George, it wasn't. I mean, look how George is now. Friendliest guy in the world, happiest guy in the world. He was a son of a bitch as a kid, I'm sure. And he was, he'd be the first one to help. And, and in a lot of ways, except maybe for his upbringing as a kid, you know, he had a similar experience. Yeah, he and, did. And if there's anybody who knows that's living today who knows how great Sonny Liston was and was, you know, was there with him, it's George. I haven't heard much from George lately about Sonny, but no, he, uh, and trust me, I've looked and looked, and, and I'm I'm literally reaching out um, to George. Uh, one, he wants to hear your overview and 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 this conversation we're having about Sonny, and then uh, I'm going to get George on 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 the show, and we're going to talk about it because I have heard him say that Sonny hit really hard, but then I've also heard that the person who hit the hardest were different fighters. Uh, I can't recall the names, but uh, he definitely respected Sonny Liston. Oh, yeah. And he liked my great deal. And he learned a lot. Not that Sonny talked much. Um, but there could be no better teacher. You know, he learned how to jab from Sonny. Because Sonny's jab was like, unlike anybody else's. If somebody says, oh, yeah, that's Sonny Liston. He had one of the best jabs of all time. No, he had the best jab of because he had that 15 and a half inch fist and an 84 inch reach. So, uh, and he used to say, I jab to hurt. That's all. And there are trainers who said he knocked people down with a jab. If he loaded up with that jab, he could knock somebody down. And some people said his jab was harder than some, some boxers' right hands. Oh, yeah. Well, and Barbara, think about you got the hand size. Yeah. You got the reach. 80. Four inches. That's like Michael Jordan. That's crazy. And yeah. and by a heavyweight standards, he was small compared to today. But by today, yeah, compared to today, but he was just like amazing. And if he were older, which we believe he was, and to do the things that he did, that's right. really impressive. I'm still I'm still thinking about. You said his fist was 15 inches across. That's crazy. Yep, and all that's why all the ladies liked him, by the way. No wonder I'm alone. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh man. So how do you go? All right, so he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, he's a force. Uh, and there's this young guy named Cassius Clay. And he's talking, but you know, he doesn't really know Sonny because Sonny's like grinding, Cash is doing his thing, and then you have Floyd Patterson, who's the champ. And Floyd Patterson is the man. And his trainer, Barbara, is a guy named Gus DeMotto. And Gus DeMotto was Mike Tyson's trainer. 
Oh. Right, yeah. so it all starts to come together. All, you know, in there, all mingled. And Floyd Patterson, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, right, good-looking, African-American, smooth baby face. He looked, he reminds me of Muhammad Ali a little bit. Floyd Patterson, good-looking guy. Yep. And he was well-liked by the black community, well-liked by all communities. He was like, he was the champ. And during these times, you know, there was no greater athlete, right? Baseball, basketball, the, the champ is here is based on who's the heavyweight boxing champ. Exactly. And it was like oh. that for almost the entire 20th century. The most famous athlete in the world, most important athlete in the world. was that so, heavyweight so Talk to us about what all took place and Sonny being undefeated. A lot of people don't want him to fight for the title, but Floyd Patterson stepped up and said, you know what? He deserves a shot. No. Oh, okay. Is no. that true? No. Okay. Do not keep Floyd Patterson. So. <laughs> Look, Floyd, Pat Floyd Patterson was a great fighter, a great 185-pound fighter. Okay. But he ducked Sonny Liston, he and Customato, for two and a half years. So this is, this is very important. Um, I, I don't have anything against Floyd Patterson except the fact that not only, and this is what Sonny, Sonny did not, Sonny was not mad at Floyd Patterson for ducking the num him as the number one contender for two and a half years. He said, I do have some resentment, but it's because he never fought a black fighter once he became champ. He fought one, um, Tommy Hurricane Jackson, who was a journeyman that he fought in his fight before uh, he won the title in an elimination bout against Archie Moore. And after that, um, he didn't fight any, he didn't fight Cleveland Williams. He didn't fight Eddie Machen. He didn't fight Zora Foley. He didn't fight Sonny Liston. He didn't fight the, the great fighters back in the late fifties, all of whom were black. And so here's what you have to know. Uh, Sonny Liston was a number one contender, I think from like March or April of 1960. Um, Floyd Patterson defended against Ingemar Johansson in 1959. Got knocked out, got killed. All right, there was a, an automatic rematch. A year later, they fight again. Floyd gets knocked down a couple of times in the first round, but he comes back to win the fight. Johansson was not a great fighter. He had a great right hand, but he couldn't take a punch. That should have been the end of it. Uh, but no. Somehow, Customato says, there's another return bout. So in June, I think, of 61, he fought him for a third time, knocked him out. Okay. And Floyd Patterson or Ingemar Johansson were not the best heavyweights at that time. And the nerve of Floyd Patterson and Customato in December of 1961, instead of fighting the number one contender, he fights a former Michigan State football player by the name of Tom McNeely, who hadn't fought anyone, but he was undefeated. And the only reason that fight could be made is they made a close circuit doubleheader. Uh, Floyd fought Tom McNeely, and in Philadelphia, Sonny fought the German heavyweight champion, Albert Westfall. And if you watch that fight, you'll see the single hardest right hand ever thrown probably in the history of boxing, almost killed the guy. Um, and President Kennedy was watching the fights and President Kennedy had, had love loss for Sonny Liston because he was mob controlled and, and 
the people behind Sonny were the people that Bobby Kennedy were trying, was trying to, to put in jail. Mm. Um, and he says, you know, it would have made a lot more sense if Floyd had fought Sonny and these other two guys had fought each other. Sonny knocked the guy out in the first round, and Floyd Patterson knocked the guy down like nine, nine or ten times in a four-round fight and helped the guy up three or four times. I mean, who does this? Mm -hmm. So at that point, he, wow. had to, he had to fight. But he waited. I'm sorry if I'm interrupting. He waited another ten months before he got in the ring with him. So wow. In September of 1962. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, if... Yeah, and, and, and that had a lot to do with the trajectory of, of Liston's career. Because if Sonny had a good manager, and if he had fought for the title in 1961, this was before then Cassius Clay had acquitted himself at all. Sonny would have gone to Europe, at least I would have taken him to Europe if I were his manager, and mm -hmm. fought, and fought uh, uh, Brian London and Henry Cooper in Great Britain. If Amar got in the ring with him in Sweden, that would have been a million, two million dollars because they love Amar and they love Sonny. So, right. yeah, I mean, right. is that do not give Floyd Patterson any credit. Even though Sonny did, after the fight, he thanked him for giving him the chance. But he shouldn't have had to wait two and a half years. Because right. in 1962, Sonny Liston was 43, 44, or 45 years old. Wow. Okay, so Barbara, keep in mind that all, as all this going on, and for those who are listening in on this, right. there's a unique political climate taking place. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of changes shifting. You have the civil rights movement uh, moving into high gear. Um, Boy Patterson was someone that the NAACP, for instance, and tell me if I'm wrong, they wanted him to be champ. And they didn't feel that Sonny Liston would be a great representation of the black community. Just the opposite, exactly. Because of his because of his background and, and all that. He didn't look the part. You know, it's kind of like really, like one of the things I've learned is like whether I'm in the Philippines, whether I'm in Africa, whether I'm in Korea, the lighter you are, it seems like you're more re, re, uh, appreciated and and welcomed. Oh. The darker skinned blacks weren't highlighted as much, if you will. I, I, pers I personally have found that to be the case also, you know. Yes. Uh, so that, well, yeah. Sonny's this bad guy, doesn't talk much, sits in the corner, kind of like what you experienced as a kid, and he just has that look. I mean, you can't put a guy like that on a commercial bar. Right, right. <laughs> <He's not> the, <laughs> yeah. So, what, okay, so now take us to the point where Sonny wins the championship. But I know that was like a change in tune, right? Because he wins on the, on the trip back home. He's expecting the big crowd and no one shows up. Yeah. Uh, Jack McKinney wrote about that because uh, the Philadelphia sports writer, he was on the plane ride. And Sonny was rehearsing the speech he wanted to give. He lived in Philadelphia for four and a half years before he won the heavyweight title. In Philadelphia, there is probably not a better city in terms of the the great fighters and the great trainers that they produce. So it's a tremendous fight city. And it was, it was a dreary day when he landed and he gets, they open the door, he looks out and he's standing there with Geraldine and he says, there's like 50 people there. Oh. He, he says, there's nobody here. <laughs> she says, well, no, they'll probably come. He said, there's nobody here. He said it twice. 
Um, there was a cake for him. You know, he said, you know, he, he, this, the, when he won the title, he said, look, I'm, I, if people will give me the chance to prove who I am and the kind of person I am and to let bygones be bygones, I'll prove to them and I won't disappoint them. And he never got that second chance. So what he knew, he got off the plane, he knew, well, I'm not long for Philadelphia anymore. They're, they're not welcoming home the heavyweight champion of the world. That night, that night he called his friend uh, Bill Reddish, a wonderful man who just who died just a couple of months before uh, Sonny's son Bill Wingate died. And Bill Reddish was the son of Sonny's trainer, Willie Reddish. And he went over there and they spent the night talking, just talking about nothing. Sonny couldn't get to sleep. He was so upset when, the sun, when, 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 when sunrise came, Bill said, well, I got to go to work. He was an officer at a bank and, and he went to work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so a couple of months later, you know, and to me, that was Philadelphia's way of saying, just like St. Louis had said, we don't want you here. Right. They told him that in St. Louis. The assistant police chief, um, in late 1957, when, you know, after Sonny got out of jail, he said, look, they're going to find your dead body in an alley someday if you don't leave town soon. So he left town. Whoa. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that's what he was saying. He said, no, we don't want you here anymore. So he moved to Chicago. Now, hey. all right, well, he's the heavyweight champion of the world. He won the heavyweight championship of the world in Chicago. So he's, and he has family there. He figures, well, maybe this is the place I can move and people will finally accept me. That's all reason he really ever wanted. He wanted acceptance. He just, you know, treat me like you treat everybody else, but they never did. So they're moving in and it was a beautiful home on the South side of Chicago, uh, near the university there, um, is where uh, Barack Obama and his family lived. So Sonny moved into a 21-room mansion that had been occupied previously by Ahmad Jamal. He comes outside at noon to, to greet kids, uh, to shake their hand, to sign autographs. They have a camera. They want to take pictures. He's doing this. About 10 minutes later, four squad cars drive up. They don't get out of the car. They sit there for 10 minutes. And then they drive away. And what Mayor Daly who he had written a letter to saying he wanted to help work with kids on behalf of the city. Daly said, no, we don't want you here. And, and so then he moved to Denver. Wow. So oh, man. nobody ever gave him the chance. He just, he had a life of just a lot of rejection. And like you said, no one gave him the chance. And so then he's a champ and this guy named Cassius Clay is out there talking loud. Do you feel he got under Sonny's skin? Oh, I know he got under Sonny's skin. <laughs> right. Well, how much time had passed since he was a champ and then, you know, started getting like, I guess, like you said, kind of like hit up by Cassius Clay? Um, almost immediately. At the, um, the uh, Patterson rematch in Las Vegas on uh, July 22nd, 1963, Mm -hmm. um, Ali was, well, then Cassius Clay was there and, and he got in the ring after the fight and started screaming so loud, you're not the champ, you're the chump, come on, I'll take you on. <laughs> Alan Cosell is trying to interview Sonny and they have to complete the interview in, in the dressing room. And, and Sonny said something about to him, like, you're next. Um, uh -huh. but he did get under 
under his skin. And uh, he was brilliant. That was a brilliant campaign that then Cassius Clay conducted. Yeah. And he termed it psychological warfare. <laughs> and it was. And it worked on Sonny. Because the two things he did is he got Sonny angry. And, and you, in a street fight, if you fight angry, that's a good thing. You know, because there are no rules. But you don't want to fight angry in the ring. And Sonny always said, I always fight my fight. Doesn't matter what the crowd is like, who the opponent is. I go in there, I fight my fight. I always fight my. It was as simple as that. But he fought angry. But the other thing, which is what most people don't re remember, is Ali did not have much of a, uh, a career uh, in terms of really standout fighters that he had fought prior to fighting Liston in Miami in 1964. His last two fights were near disasters. He fought two journeyman heavyweights. He fought Doug Jones in like March of 63. And Doug Jones almost knocked him out early in the fight. If the two, if the two judges had not scored the last the rounds nine and 10 in Clay's favor, he would have lost a split decision. And that would have, it wouldn't have ended his career, but he would not have fought less this in the, the following year. Then he fought Henry Cooper in the summer of 63. And he was carrying Cooper because he used to call around. He said, Cooper will fall in five. And in the, he got careless at the end of the fourth round. He got caught with a left hook by, by Cooper. And he was very lucky. It happened like a couple of seconds before the end of the round. Plus, he fell into the ropes rather than falling hard on the canvas. He came out and he, and he knocked and he, and, and he just, and Henry Cooper almost bled to death in the fifth round. So, um, he did not look good against two journeyman heavyweights who were not anywhere near the best heavyweights in the world. And when, uh, when Clay would train, when the reporters would come, he would be going through the motions. He would not show any of his talent. That was part of his plan. And then when the reporters would leave, he would train hard. So Sonny thought, this is a two-round fight. And that's how he trained. He trained for a two-round fight. Um, and what was really unfortunate is that not only was he an old man at the time, but he had a very severely injured left shoulder. Um, and he was undergoing heat treatments or whatever the, whatever the, the, the exercises um, that his physical therapist was having him do. And, and the important thing to know about this is that the physical therapist who was doing these secret treatments, and nobody knew about it except for, for Sonny and Ash Rez, his friend from Las Vegas, who would take him to to Barney Felix's studio. Barney Felix ended up refereeing the fight because he was a world-class referee. And when he saw Sonny fighting, he said, he's going to tear that shoulder to shreds. And which way? So he didn't so much lose the title as he gave it away. Hmm. Yeah. So when he stopped, so in that fight, Barbara, <clears throat> um, great fight. I mean, there's, a, there's some, a lot of controversy around the fight as far as when Ali couldn't see through his eyes. Um, and then... Sonny stopped sitting on the stool, right? He just gave up. Seventh or eighth round, something like that? It was, it was a sixth round fight. He didn't come out for the seventh round. Yeah, so that was the first fight. Okay. So he stops. Muhammad Ali becomes a champ. And then they have a rematch. And you, I mean, and this is where a lot of cloud comes in, right? Right. <clears throat> people feel the second fight, Sonny threw that fight. And I've heard that he threw the fight 
upon someone at midnight, right? Son and Geraldine, and they were holding them ransom, telling him that he better not beat Muhammad Ali. You, is that true? Wow. Yeah, well, no, you read that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's <Sure>. my reason. <laughs> and I was, I bungled it to death. I mean, I, I was talking to Ash Resnick's daughter, who was a good friend of Sonny's, uh, when she was four years old, three years old. And she said, you ought to talk to my mother. And I went and talked to Marilyn Resnick. And she said, she's the one who told me that. And she was told that by Joe Lewis's wife, who heard it from Joe. And the only person that Joe would have, that, that Sonny would have vented to was his dear friend, Joe Lewis. So, but before, before you get to Lewiston, Maine, that was not the originally scheduled rematch. The originally scheduled rematch was for November 16th. 1964 in Boston. And the, Sonny was a very superstitious man. And on Friday, November 13th, 1964, that was the luckiest day of Muhammad Ali's life and the single most unlucky day of Sonny Liston's life. Because Sonny was ready to go. Um, I mean, I, I, I can give you a lot of information about that, but the, uh, just believe me. I mean, Archie Moore saw Sonny train. He said, if he stays in shape, this fight won't go more than five rounds. Uh, Howard Cosell said, he, he looked at Liston, he said, he's going to destroy Ali. Mm. Um, and, and Sonny was the favorite. And after dinner on Friday, November the 13th, 1964, Sonny's taking a long walk, as he did after dinner always, with his wife. And Muhammad Ali suffers a severe uh, inguinal hernia, raises, which raised a lemon-sized lump on the right side of his groin. Mm. And the fight had to be postponed. And um, uh, uh, recently, I, I wrote an e-book just focusing on, um, on what happened in the rematch in Lewis. And I focus a lot on what happened in 1964 on that hernia. It's called Life or Death in Lewiston, Why Sonny to Die in Liston Ali too, And uh, I, it's updated. It's, it, I put a, a price of $2.99 on it because it's a short book. But it tells you everything you need to know about Sonny Liston, and in particular about that fight. Sonny never stopped training. So here's an old man that trains continuously from like July or August of 1964 to the end of May in 1965. Wow, they didn't fight in South Dang, that's a long time. Well, he had a hernia alley. Right. So he needed three months before he could even work out. And yet also, Muhammad Ali, he's just turned 23. The man's in his prime. And obviously, he was going to go on to be a great fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, but the only reason Muhammad Ali is thought of the way he is today is because that fight on November 16, 1964, never took place. Right. Even if Ali had won, he would have suffered the same fate that Joe Frazier suffered when Joe Frazier won a 15-round decision in 1971 against Ali. I think Ali won nine rounds in that fight. But that aside, Joe Frazier had to be helped from the ring. He went directly to the hospital. He spent four days there, and he almost died a couple of times. Right. And uh, Ali didn't hit any, he hit all more often than Sonny did, but not as hard. So that's what, that's what set the stage. 
for that, that fight in, uh, in Lewiston, Maine. And Sonny was in decent shape. He looked in decent shape. But he was an old man. So and, would, you uh, say that, would you say, so you do, so just share with the people, like, your opinion. And just share with people can get the book, but you feel, like, what do you think happened for him to throw that fight? Exactly. Well, yeah. What, what yeah. You, I want to know. Okay. So, uh, two days before the fight, and I have attribution on this from a couple of people. Um, one of one of the one of his uh, his assistant trainer, and then a kid he knew in uh, he was friends with in 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 Ireland. Um, a couple of um, black Muslims, as they were called then, Nation of Islam members. They came to his, uh, his training headquarters, put a gun to his head, and said, you better not win this fight. If you do, you're dead. Okay, Sonny that day, he, he worked out. Somebody in the audience says, which one is Sonny Liston? I mean, he was just not Sonny Liston anymore. He was so scared. He would not have taken a dive for that, but he was shook up. So evidently, they're thinking, the Muslims are thinking, I don't know. He didn't seem like he was going to take a dive. We got to do something else. So what did they do? As soon as Sonny leaves his room in the morning, his suite at the Poland Spring Inn, uh, I don't know how many members of the Nation of Islam, they knock on the door, they say, hi, Mrs. Liston, we're here to keep you company. So they kidnapped his wife and his son. And which son was that? Well, I think this was an adopted son. I, I saw a tax return of Sonny's in 1960. Um, and he claimed as exemption uh, a son by the name of Bobby, which I don't know if they formally adopted him or if he was um, uh, one of Sonny's children uh, out of wedlock. I don't know for sure. And, and I've never heard anything about that kid. But, I, um, but it was a boy. Uh, it, it, it was a son that they said. So a couple hours later, um, it was late morning, early afternoon, right afternoon. Some other um, Muslims say, tell Sonny, uh, look, Sonny, we're serious about you having to take the dive. And just to show how sincere we are, we have your wife and child, and you will not see them again unless you throw the fight. That's what, Mar that's what Joe Lewis's wife, Martha, told Marilyn Resnick when she ran into her. Because Marilyn, who was dear friends with the Listons and the Lewises, um, uh, was calling Sonny, uh, was calling Geraldine on the phone, and she wouldn't answer her phone. She all morning long. She says to Geraldine, and she, when she sees Martha, I'm worried. I can't get in touch. She says, well, don't you know what's happening? The Muslims have her and the boy. Sonny has to lose the fight if he wants to. See now, was that, was that the same day of the fight? That's the day of the fight. So I don't think that Sonny threw the fight. I don't think that people kidnapped his wife and child. I know they did. You know, she, Marilyn Resnick was there. And people say, well, why didn't Sonny, why did Sonny say after the fight, oh yeah, I didn't see the punch, it was a good right hand. Let me tell you something, when you're told to throw a fight at, 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 uh, at your own peril, if you don't do it, whether it be your life or somebody else's, which is what the mob did all the time. I don't know if the mob told the Muslims, this you ought to do, you know, look, if you want your guy to win, you know, here's all you have to do. The now, mob would have done. I heard yeah. that after the I heard after the fight that Geraldine, his wife, was at the fight. 
No, she never went to the fight. Okay. She never, she couldn't even stand listening to Sonny fight. She would always wait in her room and wait for the call. And then she'd come down to the arena wherever Sonny was fighting. All right. So when the fight was over, she would show up, right? Uh, well, what? Sonny went back to the Poland Spring Inn, which was very close. Uh, and, and she said, well, I'm glad you're okay. Um, okay, so she, one other. Okay, so just for clarity, she was oh. never ever in the arena uh, before, during, or after the fight. No, no, she like I say, um, she couldn't stand to see Sonny be hit. She was always confident he would win, but you know, I mean, there aren't that many women who really like seeing somebody get beat up and blood. Yeah, that'd no, be hard I, to watch. And you Barbara, you make an exception. I don't know, but chances are. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. So, so for clarity, you've interviewed Geraldine when she was alive. I only, I talked to her on the phone once. I got her phone number from uh, William Knack, uh, the great writer from Sports Illustrated, who wrote a great article of interviewing Geraldine. And I called her, and uh, she she hated the press. She hated media because they were so unfair to her husband. And she didn't want to talk to me. If I was smart, I would say, look, I'm a good, I tried to tell her, I said, this is a good heavyweight of all time. I want to do right by the man. I should have said, look, how much money can I pay you? I'll fly to St. Louis, I'll interview you. You want 10% of the book, I will give you, so, you know, I would love to talk. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Right. But, um, okay, well, we have a good 10 minutes. And, and so from here, take us to that final moment, because that's where people feel that there's, I've heard people say that, uh, they found Sonny Liston dead after he. Oh, right. um, Geraldine wasn't home. Uh, nope. I heard that there was a maid or someone who discovered the body. Is that accurate? That's in my book. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm asking for the people who are like. For me. Yeah, for tuning in. Yeah, no, I'm and and yeah, and uh, I know how Sonny Sonny died. I know who killed him, and there are two reasons why they would have killed him. Let's hear it. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, yeah, so Geraldine was out of town. She, she celebrated Christmas in St. Louis. The listens were not getting along very well anymore. Sonny wasn't co coming home that much. You know, I mean, who knows how many women he was sleeping with on a daily basis. Uh, he was just pretty much out of control. His future was bleak. Um, you know, he had fought a couple of times in the last year. He had got knocked out by Leotis Martin on a fight he took on two weeks' notice uh, with a cold. He ran out of gas and really got knocked out. And then he, he, uh, he bludgeoned Chuck Webner. And so she was gone. Um, on, about, on, on, on the 28th of, or early on, on the morning of the 29th, um, um, Sonny called a couple of people. He called Barney Baker, a Teamster organizer that he was very close to. They police used to call them the Black and White Brothers in St. Louis. And he told them, "Look, I'm gonna, I'm coming through Chicago uh, in in a, in a few days, and I want you to be here. I got some money for you." I don't know why he thought he had, he owed Barney some money. Barney didn't know why. Um, and, and then he called his friend and sparring partner, Gary Bates. He says, look, Geraldine's in, Chico in St. Louis. Come on over, we'll party tonight. 
Gary goes over there, knocks on the door. Nobody answers the door. Johnny Toko, um, a very uh, a well-known trainer in both St. Louis and Las Vegas, um, tells Sonny, he, he, he throws a, a New Year's Eve party in his gym for friends and, and boxing people. Sonny says, don't worry, I'll be there. Um, and he didn't show. And he wondered, he called, he called a couple of times. He called at midnight, he called at 3 a.m. Well, on New Year's Eve day, Mildred Stevenson, who was the house cleaner for both the Listons and Lem Banker, his good friend, his very dear friend. Um, so she goes over to his house on New Year's Eve day. She's got the key. She walks into the house. She sees the house in disarray. She walks up to the bedroom and sees Sonny Liston's body dressed in boxer shorts and a t-shirt resting on a dressing chair with a needle in his arm. She calls Len, tells him, what's up? Len says, lock the door and leave, right now. She leaves. All right, the next day, uh, in a New Year's Eve, New Year's Day morning, Geraldine calls Johnny Toko and says, I haven't heard from Sonny in days. Would you do me a favor? Would you go over to the house and see what's up? I, I you know, I'm getting worried. He's not picking up the phone. He goes there, Johnny Toko goes there. Uh, he sees Sonny's car in the driveway. Um, and there's some, some couple of milk bottles and, and newspapers. The door is locked. He's worried. He knows something is wrong. Sonny didn't disappear like that. You know, he, he, he kept to himself a lot, but he would not disappear like that. He calls somebody he knows on the police department. They open the door. They gain entry. Uh, they see the same thing that Mildred Stevenson saw. The house in disarray. It looks like a brawl is in place, which in fact, it, it was the case. Goes up, sees, sees Sonny lying with the needle in his arm, just like Mildred Stevenson. This is a dear He's distracted, he's disgusted. He knows what probably happened. He leaves the house. Geraldine gets home the 5th, on the night of the 5th. I think people probably thought she was coming home sooner. She comes home, the house smells horrendous. Uh, she, and, and she, yeah, she goes upstairs. She finds Sonny's badly decomposed body on that dressing chair. She takes, um, she takes Danielle, says, we got to leave now. She takes him to a neighbor, comes back, calls her doctor, calls her attorney, takes care of personal business, and, and, and then calls, calls the police. And they were very suspicious. Um, but when Geraldine got home, and when the police got there on the morning of January 6th, there was no needle in Sonny's arm, and the living room looked like nothing had happened to, the, you know, to somebody who hadn't seen it. Uh, everything was cleaned up. The house was immaculate, said uh, Dennis Caputo. He was a, one of the first officers on the scene. He was in charge of uh, the Clark County Criminalistics Bureau. Um, in 2013, uh, a guy published a book about his father, who was a mob guy. Um, I, think his, I think the kid's name was Greg Swain. Uh, he was on the, his father was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for in, back in, in, in the 60s, before he got arrested driving down Sunset Boulevard in, in his Cadillac convertible. And so he met his father for the first time when he was 30 years old. 17 years later, two days before his father died, he said, look, I got a level 
I got to tell you something. He tells him the story, but he was there when Sonny Liston was killed with wow. a lot of other mobs there. And, and, and they injected him with, with an overdose. What they did evidently is just, all right, they, they subdued him. The, uh, the needle in his arm, uh, OD'd him, and then brought him up and, and positioned him on that dressing chair. Um, but when the police saw that, when came Johnny Toko, they saw the houses in disarray. Anything like, I don't know if these were, if these were Clark County sheriffs or police, but um, the sheriff would have found out about this. And he was the most powerful guy in Las Vegas. Somebody ordered the mob to look. To, you got to clean up your mess. Because the mob looked the other way. I mean, the, the law enforcement in Las Vegas looked the, uh, the other way a lot when it came to crimes that were committed by the mob. And they told them, look, this might be attributed to natural causes here, okay? But uh, you gotta get over here and clean this place up. Nobody's gonna say, oh yeah, he died of natural causes. If there's a, you know, if there's a needle in his arm and the house is all wrecked. So the mob killed him for one of the two reasons, either um, because he didn't take the dive against Chuck Weppner that he was supposed to take, and I know that for a fact. Or, as some people say, well, the mob fixed uh, Lewis and they told Sonny, we'll pay you, don't worry about it, you'll be set for the rest of your life. And they said, well, Sonny didn't. Sonny never got the money, and after a few years, he got upset. Well, that's preposterous. One thing, it was the Muslims that fixed the fight, not the mob. And if you were promised money by the mob for throwing a fight, if you didn't get paid right after the fight, I guarantee you, you would never get paid, you know? So, yeah, the mob killed him. And the thought, I mean, of all the indignities suffered by Charles Sonny Liston throughout his life, the final indignity is that his body was left to rot for a fucking week. And the coroner tried to get his body on, you know, on the gurney and in a body bag and carried out of the house, and that magnificent body almost split. So, you know, I know people are fascinated by that. Oh, yeah, well, that's what I want to know about Sonny Liston's life, his death. All right, okay, for all you folks who want to do that, you know that now. Maybe it's time we start celebrating the man's life and his talent and the good things that he did. Right, let's give him that welcome. He married to Philadelphia. Um, I have like one of my last questions for you, Paul, and there's so much, and you guys get the book, Sonny Liston, The Real Story Behind Ali and Liston Fights, um, as well as all the other books. So search out Paul Gallander, um, because I love your passion about it. Mm -hmm. But my question for you uh, is, if there was a movie done, which I know there's been some poor attempts at doing a movie. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> but if there was a movie done, what would be the how you would like to see that movie like displayed as far as his life? His heart. His heart. The man had a lot of heart. He loved kids. And what I find remarkable about that is a lot of people, a lot of men, get raised by abusive fathers. That abuse them, they abuse their wives, uh, just, you know, really asshole people. And, <laughs> and, and if Sonny's father wasn't the biggest asshole in the world, he'll do the biggest asshole comes along, okay? 
And I have no qualms about saying that because Sonny knew that, everybody knew that. Um, and yeah, so you know, focus on the, on, on the man's talent. If you do nothing else, just focus on his talent. If you don't wanna believe that he had any redeeming qualities, okay, uh, I won't hold it against you. But you can question the man's character all you want. I think you're wrong if you, if you really think of him in a bad light, but you cannot question his talent. And I will debate anyone. When you have George Foreman on, say, George, you think you could have beaten Sonny Liston? On your best day, George, do you think you could have beaten Liston anywhere near his best? And if he says, yeah, I will be very surprised. And you tell him, George, you ought to talk to Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I, I concur with you. I believe that George would 100% say that Liston was, would, would destroyed him in these four. I've actually heard him say that in interviews. Um, Actually, one more thing I was thinking, I just want your opinion on this, because there's not a whole bunch of people that are still around and available to talk to who knew Sonny. Uh, but during that time, during with civil rights, they used to use a lot of the black athletes, Barbara. They would bring them together to influence. It's kind of like, that's the way Instagram was back then. Mm. So you would see the, the Wilt Chamberlains, uh, the, the Jabbar, Abdul-Jabbar, William Brown, a lot of sounds. Like come. I can't think of uh, name Tiffany, but they would all come together. But I never seen a picture with Sonny Liston with all of these famous black celebrities. No, yeah, that's right. Um, there was one picture though. Uh, he participated in a civil rights march in Denver. He didn't stay with the march the whole time. He was a little uncomfortable being like the face of something. Uh, but in my book, I mean, he talks about the black experience uh, and he, he referred to blacks uh, as being crabbed, like crabs in a bucket. The more they try and get out of the bucket, they keep getting pulled back in. Mm -hmm. And he said that there's, there needs to come a time when all of the decisions about our lives are not made by white people. We need to stop buying houses from white people. We need to build our own houses, you know, from the ground up, not go buy somebody else's house, because that way we know what we have. That way we know the foundation. And Sonny would have been a great spokesperson for civil rights. Uh, if he were around today, yeah. Back then, no. He was, he was anything but. Right. And it's unfortunate. And, and, and like I said, he was no saint. Anybody wants to tell me the bad things he did, as long as they're true, I'll say, yeah, okay. I'm like, you know, beat it to death. Let's look at this side. You know, let's look at this side of him. And if anybody who watches this or, you know, finds out about this, if they knew Sonny in any way or their fathers knew him and they have a story, let me get in touch with you or get in touch with me, uh, you know, paulgallander at gmail.com. Let me know your experiences because in, in a sense, I feel like I'm the keeper of all things listed, mainly because nobody else wanted to do it. Right. And he deserves it. He really deserves it. You should be commended. You should. Barbara, you got any questions, outstanding questions you'd like to ask? I just have one more question, Paul. And that is, um, I just want to know how you navigated the pressure, even really the ethics of writing about a historical figure and making sure that, you know, their story got out there, their, their true story. How did you, how did you deal with that? Uh, well, I just, you know, put one foot in front of the other. I, 
you know, I was working, I was a nonprofit fundraiser um, almost all the years that I worked on this. Um, and so I put as much time into it as I could. I can't say that I've done a good job of promoting either my books or Sonny because it's out there. I send a New York Times uh, an email saying I have an 8,200 word story on Sonny Liston's death. And I basically told them that you owe Sonny the truth because the New York Times of all publications has never seen, has never considered the truth about Sonny Liston's life or career as being news that's fit to print. As soon as he, they, as soon as he lost the title, they said that, I think it was Arthur Daly in 1965 wrote the, the myth of the invincible Sonny Liston has been thoroughly exploded. Mm. The, their obituary of Sonny Liston in January of 1977 was 122 words long, did not mention Muhammad Ali. Sonny had a, a, a joke of a manager for four months in Philadelphia, this guy George Katz. When he died, the New York Times, only because he was Sonny Liston's manager for a brief time, did an obituary, which is 183 words long. And then in, in the 35th anniversary of the Lewiston fight, they hire a freelancer and to write the article. The first sentence is basically saying, there's this, anybody who thinks that Sonny Liston wasn't not is telling you a conspiracy theory that refuses to die. This is the New York Times. Are they going to print this story? Are they going to print a story about Sonny's death? Uh, it's the last story they ever wrote about him. Uh, and... And I find it offensive. And, uh, and uh, I, it pisses me off. It pisses right, me off. So the truth will out. So on, on his death certificate, was it December 31st or did they say January 1st? I haven't seen it. Um, it, it no, they probably put uh, December 29th or December 30th. Because wow. it was one of those two days. I think he probably died on the 29th. So uh, Barbara, 30, 30 years this coming month. What's that? That was 50 years ago this coming month. That's crazy. Wow. 50 year anniversary. Maybe now the New York Times will do something, Paul. Right. That's right. Yeah. 1970. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and it's ironic. You know, I, I tried to get people on the 50th anniversary, the 55th anniversary of the fight in Lewiston. I figured, okay. It, it didn't occur to me in, in 2015 to write a story uh, or, uh, about that. So I figured, okay, well, I wrote a, this little ebook. People are going to want to know what happened in that fight because right. I'm the only one who has a story. I mean, it was like crickets. I'm calling around, I'm sending out query letters. You want to talk to me about this? I didn't get a response. <laughs> not, even, not even from Ring Magazine? I didn't send it to Ring Magazine. I didn't. I mean, they've read my book. I mean, people are there. They don't want to know the truth about Sonny. And, and the thing is, I've talked to a lot of people about Sonny. Um, and there's certain people who think that if you say something good about Sonny, listen, you're say, saying something bad about Muhammad Ali. Mm. And that's not the case. And one other thing I'd like to tell you about in terms of how Muhammad Ali really looked at Sonny Liston, he was on the Today Show in either 1999 or 2000. He just happened to have the TV on. 
And Matt Lauer says, what's your greatest accomplishment in or out of the ring? Without hesitation, Muhammad Ali says very softly, beating Sonny Liston. Matt Lauer was surprised. Yeah, he says, oh, oh okay. Well, look, I'm, what, I'm, I'm not sure I asked the question properly. Uh, I'm not just talking about accomplishments in the ring. I want to include all the other stuff that you, so many great things you've done outside of the ring. Without hesitating, Ali says, beating Sonny Liston. Huh. Okay? Would he have said that? He did one other thing. And, and this is the basis that people, if you want to reevaluate Sonny Liston, you have to take this into account. Uh, Muhammad Ali never fought the real Sonny Liston anymore than Larry Holmes fought the real Muhammad Ali or Rocky Marciano fought the real Joe Lewis. Sure. Uh, last fight and that fight and, and the fight against Trevor Burbick, Ali's, those were humiliating. I mean, Ali could have died in his, the way he prepared for that fight. All he cared is how he looked. Nobody thinks about those fights. Nobody questions Ali's greatness. The only thing people know about and remember about Sonny is he lost twice Muhammad Ali and, and his performance in that second fight. People said, just forget the man. Let's just move on without him. Right. All right, so Sonny's back. And if anybody wants to know about it, you know, ask him. All right, well, Paul, we're going to get the word out and help get some people to buy more of your books. Um, uh, I think you're amazing what you've done and how you're fighting. Ah, no, seriously, I mean, like I'm a big believer is that when you see injustice and you step you up and do something like you've done, that speaks volumes because, like you said, so many people will just walk past it, won't even like give it a second look. Uh, and when I see injustice, I step up to the plate, and you know, it's not like you're a boxer and that's what drove you. I am a boxer and I want to talk about this boxer. You saw an injustice. I mean, so you, you know, I, I commend you. I think it's amazing. So thank you for giving us the time. I appreciate this. Yes, absolutely. Right. Thank you, Paul. It was uh, definitely a great storytelling hour for me and for me to learn a little bit more about Sonny Liston and your whole process. And like Robert said, I love the fact that you, you, you were um, so determined to tell his story. And so I, I would, uh, we forgot to tell Barbara something, uh, Paul. Uh-oh. Well, Sonny Liston had a nickname. What was his nickname, Paul? Well, he actually had two nicknames. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the one everybody knows about is the bear. The bear? Bear. Yeah. Okay. yeah. He wasn't the big, ugly bear. He wasn't the ugly bear. Anybody who calls him anything other than the bear, that's derogatory. And it's because Ali called him that to piss him off. Ali did not give Liston the nickname of the bear. It was a sparring partner, Ben Skelton, who gave him the nickname. But in the gym, Sonny had an even more impressive name. Now, you remember Cleveland Williams, right? right. Cleveland Williams, one of the hardest hitters of all time. Uh, he was known as the Big Cat. In the gym, Sonny was known as TC, short for Top Cat. And there is no more impressive nickname in boxing for a heavyweight than the Top Cat. This is exactly what it says. Wow. Yeah. Man, I mean, the more we talk to you, the more we discover. Oh, we got to do a part two of this. It's a wealth yeah. of uh, knowledge here. 
And uh, and just so you know, like I mentioned, I mentioned your name, um, and we're going to talk to you. And I had a good amount of people go, "Hey, send me that interview. I want to I want to hear what Paul has to say." And one of them, oh. a guy by the name of Art Davy, Art Davy is the creator and founder of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC. Oh, really? Yeah. And so he can't wait to 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 hear this. And Art, when he was a young boy, saw Sonny Liston. I think he said he was around 15 years old. Awesome. That's awesome. So people, there are people, there are, and there's people who are going to continue to champion all the things that you've worked on and done uh, to, to put this out there to, to add to this legacy of Sonny Liston. So thank you. Thank you for the time, Paul. Thank you oh, so hey, much. Thank any last that. words, uh, like, uh, I mean, we'll share how to contact you, but anything that you want to share with people who want to reach out and, and, and connect with you? Uh, uh, like I said, if you want to communicate with me, uh, it's my name at gmail.com, uh, you know, and especially if you have something to offer, you know, or you, if you want to argue with me, if you think you have evidence, <laughs> that, oh, no, Sonny didn't throw that fight. Or, uh, oh, no, he, uh, he injected himself with drugs or whatever, you know. Um, but like I say, anybody that has any first or secondhand information about the man that they got from a member of their family, I would love to hear it. All right. But I'm only interested in the truth. And because the truth in life there is, there is the only important thing. Because without the truth, you can't have love, you can't have peace, and you most certainly cannot have justice. Well, there you go. That's, That's Paul awesome. Gallner, everybody. Get the book, Sonny Liston, the real story behind the Alley Liston fights. And there's more books available uh, that were written by Paul. So Google Paul, look him up, and we've made available his uh, contact information. But he's only interested in the truth. That's right. <laughs> and or if you want to debate, then uh, Paul is ready. You better have your facts. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thank you. All right, you guys. Until next time. Be healthy. Stay healthy. Boom. Stay healthy. <laughs>